Somehow I believe um, the sermon last night, the Lord gave a heavenly segue to this evening service as Brother Mike concluded with Revelation chapter 20. And I'd like to continue from where Brother Mike left off. Can we all turn with the Lord's help to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ, the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will one day return for three main purposes. To resurrect the dead, the living, uh, the, the wicked dead and the, the good dead. To execute judgment upon them. And then to restore all things to new. Jesus Christ will be the one that will be the judge designated by God. Not because God does not have the ability or the desire to judge the human race, but because he said to the Jews of his time in John chapter 5 that he has committed all judgment to the Son for the purpose of honoring his Son. Jesus said, even though judgment was committed to him, he will not judge the world, but the word which he spoke unto them will be their judge. The topic of hell and judgment is not a very popular topic. As a matter of fact, hell is probably the most repugnant doctrine in the Bible. And yet, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was the one that spoke mostly and specifically about hell and about judgment. I'm told through polls held in the United States, about 70% of people surveyed believed that there was a hell. That's somewhat odd in a country that considers itself to be above 90% Christian. But what startles me is that under 1% believe that they're going to hell. That tells me one of two things. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to even consider it at this time 
and thinking by not even studying it or hearing about it, they will be excused for their ignorance. It startles me because even in the Gospels, Jesus said that many are called but few are chosen. It startles me because he said that there are two ways, only two ways that anyone can take on earth, the broad way and the narrow way. And the broad way leads to destruction and the narrow way leads to life. But there are many that go on the way of destruction and a few that find the narrow way and the narrow gate. You see, people don't tolerate doctrine. They say doctrine is for the legalist. Doctrine is for those that maybe that are pharisaical. They just like to uphold the law. But the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 says that God has goodness and God has severity. And don't you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Early this week we had a class in Brother Walter Bojanak's class and he gave us a term that was eschatology. And the definition of eschatology was the study of the last things, the last times. Jesus came and he preached that. But he also preached eschatology. How to escape the wrath that is to come. The Bible here says, John the Revelator, in a a vision given to him, said, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. For what? To hide. In judgment, there are three elements when Jesus will come again. The purpose of the judgment is firstly to reveal. To reveal your sin and my sin. The second purpose of the judgment is to vindicate. And it's not to vindicate you, my brother, or you, my sister, and especially you, my sinner friend. It is to vindicate God Almighty. And vindicate means to clear of criticism and suspicion of any wrongdoing. And the third purpose of judgment is to execute punishment worthy of the crimes. We see that John saw the dead, the small, and the great stand before God and the books were open. The Bible tells us that there will be two resurrections. The first resurrection will occur before what is called the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints. And that resurrection will be for his saints, those that have believed in his name and accepted him as Christ and Lord. The second resurrection will be the resurrection of the wicked dead. The Bible says, blessed is he that takes part in the first resurrection. 
No one will escape. There will be no place for you to flee. Even if you're dead, you will be resurrected. You will be given a new body, another body, a body that can stand the glory of the judgment of God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened. Which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things in which were written the books according to their works. You know, brother and sister, we are saved by grace. Unquestionably, we are saved by grace. But we will be judged according to our works. It sort of casts aside this little talk about, well, if you're a Christian, all, it mean, all that matters is that you believe in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. Well, if that's all that mattered, why will there be a judgment even for the saints? Why will they be judged according to their works? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear where he says, and he's speaking about death and the, uh, the, uh, the deterioration of our earthly tabernacle, our flesh. And he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. John chapter 5, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Verily I say unto you that the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear him shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my just judgment is just. You know, some people say, well, there's going to be two different judgments, one for rewards, one for the sinner. My Bible does allow for that. My Bible says that every man will receive according to his good works or his bad works. But we will be judged for the bad. Do not think that we're going to escape judgment, my dear brother and sister. Two books, at least two sets of books. One book, and then it says books. The one book is known as the book of life. In another place, it is called the Lamb's book of life. Why is it the Lamb's book of life? You remember John the Baptist when he came baptizing in the River Jordan? And as he was doing his 
commission as given by God, he all of a sudden looked up and he saw a man coming in the distance and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It's the Lamb's book of life because Jesus Christ was that perfect Lamb, sent before, not sent, slain before the foundation of the world for the sin of mankind. And all those that he has purchased with his blood are written in the Lamb's book of life. They become his brothers and sisters, joint heirs, reigning with him together. And Jesus is going to look into that book and he's going to look at every single name and he's going to call out your name. If you happen to be in the Lamb's book of life, you will go to his right-hand side. And sinners that have not experienced that relationship with Christ will be on their tippy toes, stretching out their necks, in trepidation, just waiting to hear, is their name being called? And if the name hasn't been called from this book, it will be called from another book. And it is called the Book of Works. And every single sin that you have committed is recorded in this book. Brother, sister, as well. God has a record of every single sin that you have committed and will judge accordingly. And that judgment is there to reveal something. This judgment will not be an investigative judgment as they, they do on this earth. When they have a suspect, they first go through all the facts to find out, is this man guilty beyond reasonable doubt? Your fate would have been sealed the day you died. God knows whether you're guilty or not. It is not for God to look up your name and look up your works to determine if you're guilty or not. It's much like your tax process where you file away all the receipts, not because necessarily they're going to uh, prove to the government or to yourself that you have uh, donated so much to charity. It's there just to testify to the government if they look you up and demonstrate that you have done this thing. In that day, Jesus Christ will have all the works before him and based upon that say, this is what you have done. Guilty as determined. And you will go to the left side. What will he reveal? 1 Timothy 5 says that some men's sins are open before they go to judgment. In other words, they're evident. It's very evident that some men's sins are terribly heinous. You can look back in history and name people that have committed atrocities. Hitler, Stalin, Bin Laden. Very evident 
But some men's sins are more secret. Some men's sins we're not quite sure of. You remember O.J. Simpson? Taken to court? Suspected of killing his wife? And the prosecution decided to get some extra evidence and told him to put this glove on, see if it fits. That happened to be their big mistake, from what I understand. Because the defense were just rubbing their hands and saying, if it doesn't fit, you've got to quit. If it doesn't fit, you've got to quit. And he got let off the hook. Later on, tried by a civil court, they found him guilty, but there's nothing you could do because he escaped. Did he? His deeds are written in the book of works. What other sins does God see that we don't see or think we, God, that God doesn't know or other people don't know? In the book of Romans chapter 2, I would encourage you to read this chapter because he, this chapter gives you a prelude to how God is going to judge you on judgment day. Romans chapter 2. But we are, verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, in trying to vindicate himself from accusations even amongst his own brethren, says, For I know by myself nothing, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. What's Paul saying? Don't judge yourself? No. What he's saying is, you don't put the ultimate sentence upon yourself. We should examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith or whether we be reprobates. He writes later on to Corinthians. But there are things that we don't even perhaps understand ourselves where we stand. When we make decisions, when we say things, did I say the right thing or the wrong thing? Paul says, don't be self-condemning here where you become ineffective in God's ministry. Leave that to God. Search your heart. Ask him to reveal it. But he himself will not be judged by another man. He committed himself into the hands of God. Jesus said, that which you hear in the ear shall be shouted upon the rooftops. The things that you do in secret that you think nobody will hear or see will one day be revealed. I'm wondering how many of you would be willing to come up to this podium and confess all your filth, all the 
atrocities, all the abominations that you've committed in your life before a crowd of maybe 500 people. I would venture to say that you would rather die. What will it be? What will it be like on Judgment Day when there are billions upon billions of people and beings and angels and you'll be standing in God's spotlight answering to all the deeds that you have committed? The malicious talk the gossip, the backstabbing, the envying, the secret coveting, which is idolatry and puts yourself above God. The hatred, the unforgiving heart. I venture to say you would melt if God didn't give you a body that would support you on that day, me included. God will reveal everything. That's why if we confess him now, if we make right now, we can spare ourselves a lot of grief. The second thing about judgment, as I said, is vindication. God will vindicate himself once and for all. You know, ever since I can remember, people have been playing, uh, putting the, the blame on God. We blame God directly and indirectly. The first person that ever blamed God was Adam. When he sinned, of his own volition, Eve was deceived, but Adam, the Bible says, just plainly rebelled. And then when God confronted him in the garden, when he saw that he was naked, and he says, why are you naked? Why are you hiding? He said, the woman that you gave me. He immediately shifted the blame, not to the woman, to God. And from that time on to this very day, people are continuing to blame God for their predicament. Why is there so much suffering? If he's a loving God, why does he allow this to happen? In the 60s, the slogan was, God is dead. How can your God do things like that? Why does he let babies, innocent babies die? Why does God... Take away my joy. Why is it wrong to look at these pictures or watch these movies or listen to this sordid music? And man is continually blaming God for everything, directly or indirectly. Why did God place me in this family? Why didn't God give me some better looks? How come he gets all the girls? You can see all the different ways that we blame God, directly or indirectly. We're not content with God's plan for us. In the book of Luke, chapter 13, 
the Jews come up to Jesus or the disciples and they say to him, they were present at the, sorry, they were present at the season, some that told him of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above the Galileans because they suffered such things? You see, the basic accusation of man is God's not fair. God is not a fair God. Because I'm in this predicament and he's not, I'm not a fair God. Or he's not a fair God. And you know what? That, the answer to that is yes. That is a true statement. God is not a fair God. Nowhere in Scripture will you see it says that God is the God of fairness. But you will see in Scripture that God is a God of justice, of judgment. When Moses wanted to lead the people of Israel out and God asked him to, t- to, to, to do that task, Moses, in trepidation, felt he was too um, small for the task, so he asked God a, a sign, something that he could encourage him with, and he wanted to see God's glory. And so God told him, I will show you my glory. I will pass before you. And he named his name, the name of the Lord. And as the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. You see, fairness has to do with equal portions. How come I didn't get the same amount as he did? Happens with the children, doesn't it? How come he had a spoonful more of ice cream than I did? God never promised us equal portions. God never promised us to have the same gifts as each other. God gave us gifts severally as the Spirit directed to each and every one of us. God gave us who we are for His glory. But God will judge sin, and that is called justice. I want to... uh, Illustrate that with this, with this verse where Jesus said, Suppose ye that the Galileans were sinners above all Galileans? Why did God, why did Pilate, or, or why were these Galileans slain by Pilate? Why didn't God allow that to happen to other pagans elsewhere? See, fairness is equal portions, justice is judgment for sin. I want to show you something in the book of Romans, chapter 3. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes as a, a very learned Jew. He says, what advantage then has the Jews? See, the Jews were chosen out. They were a chosen people. It's not fair. Why were the Jews chosen? The Muslims are arguing that today. That's, that's not right. We are the ones. What advantage do the Jew have? He says, much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Does that change God's mind about you? Does that change God's plan for the universe? 
God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou. Listen, he's taking this from Psalm 51, where David repented profusely for his sin with Bathsheba and murder and lies. David was penned, and this is quoted by Paul. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Not when David was judged. When God was judged. That God would be justified in doing what he did. When God destroyed Achan in front of the Jewish nation. And Achan was asked to confess his sin. Joshua said, confess your sin and glorify God. And Achan confessed his sin and glorified God by justifying him, by saying what you are about to see. God has every right to take away my life because I sinned. And when we confess Jesus Christ, when we come before him as sinners and repent of our sins and say, God, you were right all the time, I rebelled. You justify God. You vindicate God. You clear him of any criticism, any suspicion that there was any wrongdoing with God. And you know what? In that day, if you die as a sinner, my friend, in that day, when, God, when Jesus Christ tells you that, you know what? You will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. You will not reject what Jesus said. You will be satisfied. There will be a peace inside of you that what you have done in rejecting and denying the Christ Almighty, you will be satisfied. In Romans chapter 3, again it says, now we know that whatsoever thing the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Job says in chapter 9, I believe, he says that in that day, out of a thousand questions, you will not be able to answer one. You will be satisfied. God will be satisfied. Jesus Christ will be satisfied. And God is looking for the day, believe it or not, God is looking for the day when he will judge the world. Psalm 37, 28 says that the Lord loveth judgment. Because once and for all, his name will be cleared. How would you feel? How would you feel if all your life people have been talking things behind your back, evil, malicious attacks upon your character, and there was nothing you could do about it, and you were just waiting for the chance when your name could be cleared? You and me as sinning Christians and, and, and unbelievers, how would you feel if your name was cleared? What about God? You see, the judgment is not for us. The focus of the judgment is not the sinner. The focus of the judgment is God Almighty. 
He's the one that's going to be at center stage. He is the one that's going to be the all in all. How are you going to feel, my dear sinner friend? When you're standing before him, your knees buckling. You think that you're going to even notice anyone to your left or right. Do you think that you're going to notice anyone from behind? You're going to be so focused on your dilemma, your inescapable problem. It's not going to be like on proving night. Well, you say your thing and then you sit back and listen to the rest of the testimonies. You're going to be isolated in your own mind. Every mouth will be stopped. The Lord will then turn the tables and instead of his name being maligned and accused and criticized, it's your turn. The third thing or purpose of judgment is execution. In the book of Jude, the writer writes, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God will execute his judgment. What is his judgment? We read about it. You'll be thrown into hellfire. Jesus used the term in the Greek, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. And it was a word picture, a well-known metaphor of that day, of a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, where they never had landfills, where they never had garbage collection every Tuesday morning, but they had a big garbage dump where they put carcasses of animals, refuse, and even human beings that weren't counted worthy to have a decent burial. And they burned it. And it became a picture of hell. And the scripture says, where their worm dieth not, nor is the fire put out. In such a big dump, not all portions of that dump were burning. There were worms and maggots. The horrible picture. of burning. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and the tares, he says, get the wheat, put it into my barn, put the tares, bind up, and throw it into a furnace of fire. That furnace of fire, we read in Revelation chapter 20, is the lake of fire. You know, and I hear some very 
smart-alecky comments about hell. You know, I don't really particularly like talking about this. But I'm at a stage where I fully agree with the Apostle Paul, who said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. And many young kids take hell and think that, hey, we're going to have a big party down there. There's going to be a lot of us there. We're going to have a good time. And maybe they don't even believe in this concept of a lake of fire. What does that mean? Mate, that's just imagery. Maybe they don't even believe in a devil. And maybe they don't think it's going to be that bad. Maybe I can grant to you that it may not be a physical fire. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be as painful as a physical fire. You see, he put this imagery in not to talk about the the dimensions of the lake of fire, not to talk about the depth of the lake of fire, But he he gave this imagery that this is a a lake that is like a fire that will burn that you have no escape from. Never, ever, forever in in this place of torment. The word picture is there in ways that you can understand it. And whether it's some kind of a a, a spiritual torment in your mind or whether it's some kind of other punishment, it doesn't matter. The pain is going to be just as bad or worse than you have ever imagined. And that's forever. You know, I couldn't help but looking at in in, uh, Martin Chapel where they have the... uh, the, the, the table of books there, and I picked up a book there. It was called something about lifers. The testimony that those that were in, in life imprisonment in the state of Pennsylvania, some of their comments as to the, the um, conditions and what they felt about being in there. I want to read, if you don't mind, some of the um, feelings and sentiments of these prisoners. 3,000 life sentences in the state of Pennsylvania, 150 new ones each year, and in the state of Pennsylvania, there is no such thing as parole if you get a life sentence. Harry Twiggs. I have been rebelling all my life. Where I come from, a man is judged by his lack of respect. In school, the guy that doesn't study, that doesn't get good grades, is considered more hip than the guy who goes to school and studies. If you drop out of school and get a job, you get points for that. You join a gang, you get points for that. You hurt somebody and everybody sees you hurt them, you get points for that. You kill somebody, you really get points for that. I mean, you'd be at the top of the heap because you took another's life. When you go to juvenile jail and you come out, everybody's patting you on the back. Yeah, yeah, you went to prison. I can recall the first time I got arrested, how proud I felt sitting in the police car. I was sitting in the police, police car riding through the community. I thought I had really arrived in juvenile jail. That is where I really learned to res- not respect anyone. When I came out, I couldn't e- even call my father dad. 
And after he was there for a while, he became a Christian. This is what he said. It was mostly the pain and looking to see that I'm never going to get out of here. I look at it like this. The pains it took for my mother to bring me into this world. All I have brought her is pain all her life. I started reflecting on the pain that I caused her. On my never being able to do something for her. But caused tears and pain. Having seen her son sentenced to life in prison. Her being a Christian woman. Knowing that her son had killed somebody. All these things. It was totally against everything that she had ever planned for my life. I want to see her justified for the pains that she went through. To bring me on this earth by doing something for somebody. Yvonne Cloud. It's like nothing to hold on to. Like being in total darkness and you don't know whether the the light is going to shine through at all. Renee Thomas, a life sentence is like a fire. I can't put it out. There's not enough water to put it out because no matter how much I try to better myself, it's just not enough. Kevin Mines, waking up and not knowing what the next day will be like, whether you could be in a riot or get hurt is scary, but the real dread of losing your family or your loved ones. Craig Dateman, the one thing I really miss besides my family and children, is the ability to love, to share your life with someone else. You see, hell is not going to be the physical pain of burning. God, when he created this green earth, He manifested himself to man through his sunshine, Romans 1 tells us, through his creation. Through the warmth, God sends the rain upon the just and the unjust, and the sun upon the just and the unjust, and he speaks to us through his creation. He speaks to us. He tells us he's he's there. He tells us that he loves us by providing everything that we need. But one day, one day, When Jesus Christ parts the good from the bad and he tells the good, come and inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you before the foundation of the world and he tells those on his other side, depart into everlasting fire. They will be one of the last words that you, my sinner friend, will hear forever and ever. No more good God to provide your needs. No more love which man is so desperately in need of. No more mum or dad. Are you sitting next to your mum or dad this evening? Are you separated from them? No more mum or dad to cling to, to find comfort in, to get you out of another predicament. Forever and ever, 
and ever separated from God. That is the definition of spiritual death. My prayer for you, my dear sinner friend outside of Jesus, is that you'll never hear those words as your last. I pray that you will take Jesus and accept him now as the Lamb of God, as the one who took your sin and placed it upon himself, and he would welcome you into his eternal kingdom. Amen.